the Jewish views on one of the biggest Jewish events of the year. What did you miss if you didn't get to Lemud for 2015? We'll hear from the organisers and one of the many thousands of attendees. And good night, Mr. Tom. We talk to the star of the stage production of the popular children's book. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. More than 2,000 people took part in this year's Limud conference, which was in a new venue, Birmingham's Hilton Metropole Hotel. It was billed as the biggest and most extravagant Limud ever. There were over a 1,000 sessions under the one roof. Among the keynote speakers and performers were MP John Mann, historian Deborah Lipstadt, and members of the controversial Israeli group Breaking the Silence. The chief rabbi has begun a 10-day visit to India. Ephraim Mervis is to meet members of Jewish communities in Delhi, Mumbai, Cochin and Calcutta and spend time in the slums of Kalwa, which are north of Mumbai. He'll also visit a project run by Tzedek, the UK-based Jewish charity which targets global poverty. The Supreme Court in Israel has partially accepted an appeal from the former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert and reduced his prison sentence. Mr Olmert, who's 70, will now serve 18 months rather than the six-year sentence handed down to him in March 2014 for accepting bribes, before he became Prime Minister, to promote a controversial real estate project in Jerusalem. He'll be the first Israeli leader to go to jail when he starts his sentence in February. Royal Mail has announced that a special stamp to honour Sir Nicholas Winton will be issued in March. Sir Nicholas, known as the British Schindler, died last year at the age of 105. On the eve of the Second World War, he helped rescue nearly 700 children from Nazi-occupied Czechoslovakia. The stamp will be part of a set of six, paying tribute to British humanitarians. And finally, the actor and comedian Sasha Baron Cohen and his wife, the actress Isla Fisher, have donated $1 million, around £670,000, to help victims of the conflict in Syria. The money will go to Save the Children and the International Rescue Committee. Save the Children has announced half of the sum will fund a programme vaccinating more than 250,000 children against a potential measles outbreak in northern Syria. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport. Thanks, Viv. World Sailing has announced it will be holding an investigation and seeking clarification from the Malaysian Organising Authority of the Youth Sailing World Championships after Israel were unable to send a delegation to the event in Malaysia. The Israeli Sailing Association said Yoav Omir and Noi Drihan wouldn't be participating at the event, blaming unacceptable demands. Israeli champions Maccabi Tel Aviv are looking for a new manager after Slavisa Yukanovic announced he was joining English Championship side Fulham. Apologising to Maccabi fans, the Serb led the team in this season's Champions League, though they failed to pick up a point in their campaign and only scored once in their six games. The club will receive €500,000 from Fulham. And finally, Omri Kaspi, the first Israeli to play in the NBA, scored a career-high 36 points on Monday. However, his record point haul wasn't enough to prevent the Sacramento Kings falling to a 122-103 defeat to the Golden State Warriors. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, Andrew continues to stay with us along with Fran Wolfish as we have a look at this week's Jewish newspaper. Welcome to you both. Now, let's start off with a story that's sort of going to 
be a spin-off of, of what's dominating this whole programme, and that is about Limud. As you may have gathered, Limud's going to feature quite a lot throughout the show in this particular edition. But Rabbi Mervis, a distinct lack of his presence at Limud. Yes, as you said, Phil, one of the people who won't be there will be the chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis. He does have a good reason for that, because he's in India. He's paying a visit to the various communities in Delhi, Mumbai, Cochin and Calcutta. A bit of a landmark visit there. And obviously that's why he's not at Lamud. So clearly this is obviously an official visit as opposed to a bit of a holiday, we assume. Yes, absolutely. I mean, he's also doing some social action work out there as well and visiting some of the poorer neighbourhoods. And, you know, I think it's I think it's nice to see the chief rabbi doing projects like this and visiting refugees. Obviously, he went and visited the Syrian refugees not so long ago as well. I think he is the UK chief rabbi, but he's not just there for the UK Jewish community. He's also there to represent the UK Jewish community around the world and to also visit other you know countries when he first became the chief rabbi he did actually say as one of the three priorities of him being there was social uh, responsibility he did emphasize that and obviously as fran has alluded to part of his trip there will be visiting various communities and obviously taking up upon the whole social responsibility theme yeah and i think that it does appear certainly at surface value anyway as though he as a chief rabbi is far more not necessarily in favor of but perhaps more inclined to do more in the way of outreach and going on official visits and being seen elsewhere within the worldwide Jewish community. And I'm not sort of saying that any of his predecessors were less inclined, but it certainly appears that Rabbi Mervis is perhaps that little bit more, should we say. Yeah, I've always felt that he's more of a people's rabbi, if you can give him that name. But he does get himself out there in the community a lot more. He is, you know, he wants to be amongst his congregations, whether they're in the UK or abroad. So I think this is fantastic. Although, obviously, I'm sure that his presence at Limud will be greatly missed, although I'm sure that they will be absolutely fine one way or another, as we will hear throughout this programme, as we said. Now, the next item on the agenda is going to be, well, one of several, really, because it's the top 10 stories of the past year. Now, I don't know about you, but I think there's too many to choose from. So where do we start? What has made the official Jewish News top 10? Robert Rinder, Judge Rinder, the UK's answer to the American court reality show host, Judge Judy. Who'd have thought that Judge Rinder would get to the top, but he has almost 30,000 hits in 2015. You came to our website to read an interview with him. I, you know, I think he's great. He's good value, isn't he? I'd be lying if I said I've ever seen an episode of the programme, but that's just me. (laughs) Um, don't worry, well, I, I don't think I've made it through a whole episode either. Well, that's, and that's absolutely no offence. That's two to... out of three of us then. Let me tell you, when I was on maternity leave for most of 2015, he was great value to he my He kept girl. you company, he, did he? He really did, yes. Do you know what it is? I, I think that it's a, a lack of understanding for me personally to understand why people would be as so bold and audacious to go and air their dirty linen in public. Mm. And I don't know if I can quite understand it. Although having seen what I have seen of the programme... I know that he clearly is very good at what he does, and you can tell that he absolutely deserves to be where he is. So he's number one. What else is on that list? At number two and number five, we have Brendan O'Neill, one of our great columnists, actually the editor of spikedonline.com. He produced two columns for us, pretty much attacking the, the lefties, as we might call them. 
the one column that got sort of nearly 20,000 hits and more than 5,000 likes basically sort of attacked the left for saying that Israeli citizens deserve to be murdered in the wake of the stabbings, the terrible stabbings that we saw obviously in Israel in recent months. And, you know, I think Brendan makes some very valid points as well. At a time like this, is it really valuable to add to the argument by saying, you know, Israeli citizens deserve to be murdered? I mean, nobody would say that really. Well, I think that any half-decent left or right-leaning individual would not say that anyone deserves to be murdered. So it's obviously important that we make sure that we're not tarnishing all, quote, lefties with the same brush. But certainly it is a case that when that story arose earlier on in the year, I remember reading it and just almost feeling sick that anyone would wish anyone murdered. And I I think any half-decent individual would think the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Brendan wrote about it very eloquently. So that's probably why we got so many hits for that particular column. The third story, number three, was actually that the police barred the Nazi rally from taking place on Golders Green earlier this year. I mean, as you can imagine, that was a massive story for us in the build-up to it. There was going to be this rally, there wasn't. And then obviously when the police finally banned him from doing so, I hate to say it, it captured our the readership's imagination, but obviously that hits our community so hard. It's right at the heart of us, and that's why it was so popular. And fortunately, the police did ban him. Well, I think, I think the correct terminology that we need to use as far as that's concerned anyway is it, it wasn't actually banned because technically speaking, according to the law of this country anyway, protests, as it were, can't be banned, but they can be moved. And that's thankfully what we saw, wasn't it? We saw that yes. the, the actual protest mm-hmm. was relocated. And as a result of it, I think that the, the residents of Golders Green and obviously the bulk of the community were that little bit happier for it. And of course, all of the hype that surrounded it. And I think if my memory serves me right, only about 25 people came anyway. So, yes, yeah. yeah well, and there was another one know. before that as well in Redbridge, was it? When it barely got no recognition at all and it passed, not smoothly, but no one knew anything about it. And then mm-hmm. obviously when it was announced to be in Golders Green, because it's the heart of the community, it was on a Shabbat, I think it was yes. meant to be. I mean, it, you so, know, it was... It was it was really it was uh, there to provoke, yeah, wasn't exactly. It? Yeah, two other stories. Just want to mention quickly. One is the JFS video. JFS, yeah. and as a former JFS pupil myself, I, did you go to JFS fan? No, I didn't. Uh, you Sorry, didn't. I missed out on that. Were you there, Phil? <laughs> no, I can. I, I don't know whether or not I should reveal this on a Jewish podcast, but I never actually went to a Jewish school. Full stop. So. <gasps> oh, neither did I actually. Oh, oh and, the, you know. and the microphones <laughs> have dropped. <laughs> <laughs> I um, know. I know. Don't think ill of me. Honestly, I'm very proud of my community. Okay, yeah. but as a former JFS pupil, looking back, I mean, I'm sure. We also saw the video, which obviously then went up on our website, which is why it generated so many hits. It was embarrassing. It was shocking. It was only a small a number of people, obviously, but it just takes one or two. And then the rest of the whole year were tarnished. I think the rest of the year pupils were banned. They went they sent home that day. They were indeed, yes. And all, the, all of that year was sent home exactly. to try and avoid yeah. the, any further outbreak of... Uh, rioting as they say and as well as obviously making big inroads on our website it hit the national press it was everywhere and it really wasn't a good few days for the reputation of the school no or or indeed the the community community. exactly it was very sad and just um one last story yeah obviously the terrible paris terror attacks the first time around and obviously we've seen two bouts of it this year but yeah this is obviously in january yeah that's right coming up to a year's anniversary and twelve thousand people logged onto our website to find out the latest news about the attacks at the kosher supermarket, absolutely terrible, tragic. It has been a very eventful year, so I'm sure we will find out with much anticipation what 2016 has in store for the community. Let's have a look at some of the other stories making the paper, though. We've got Sir Nicholas Winton and the successful campaign that the Jewish News ran to get him honoured on a stamp. Do we have an idea of when that stamp's going to be released, Andrew? We do indeed. 
that stamp will be being released in March. And obviously, we're all very proud here to have got the stamp. So we've got to that stage in the first place that we're going to actually commission and produce this special stamp. And we can now announce in this week's paper that it will be March when the stamp will actually come out. Excellent. So, of course, all that hard work has well and truly paid off. And do we actually know what the imagery of the stamp is going to be? I know this obviously doesn't necessarily work too well on radio, but is it just going to be, do we know a portrait of him or we're not sure at that stage yet what it is? I can tell you it's going to be this big. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Andrew. Okay, brilliant. And for those who weren't actually able to see the vision that was in front of me, I can just describe that he was actually, sure enough, using a thumb and index finger to actually demonstrate the size of a stamp. Thanks for that. And uh, also there's, uh, just lastly... We've got time for one more, and that is to do with a doctor who's helping the Ebola battle. I, I thought we were on the brink of finishing this Ebola battle, so what's this about? We absolutely are, but um, Dr. Benjamin Black, who is from Manchester originally, he's 34 years old. He has gone out a few times to West Africa. He's now back in Sierra Leone, and he's going to be out there until February. He is basically helping now in the aftermath of Ebola. He says himself, you know, Ebola's pretty much in the back of our minds, but in fact... There's a new situation that's grown out of all this. He says that for women and children, the health situation has never been more grave because what's actually happened is that Ebola has spread panic and fear amongst the community there and pregnant women are afraid to actually visit healthcare centres for fear of catching Ebola. And as a result, the maternal death rate has risen quite alarmingly. So now there's a 1 in 17 chance of dying in childbirth which is horrifically high it's a very sort of sad situation and I think a lot of people don't realize you know of course Ebola's gone now but this is the aftermath of it its effects are rumbling on in other ways well I'm sure that anyone who is kind enough daring enough and frankly well brave enough to go and help with that sort of situation deserves nothing but the highest of praise as indeed you too. So thank you very much indeed for your time for this week. You're listening to The Jewish Views. Our first item this week is based on one of the biggest Jewish events of the year, Limud 2015. It's pretty much just shut its doors for this year's event, but to give us an indication on how it went, I'm delighted to welcome co-chair of the whole project, Mike Gladstone, and also Deborah Blaustone, co-chair of programming. Welcome to you both. Let's start off with you, Mike. How did it go? It's been amazing. It's been a whirlwind. We've had the biggest limit conference there's ever been. We've had over 2,800 people here, 1,200 sessions, thousands of meals. It's been a real amazing week. We've had hundreds of people volunteering throughout the event. We're really thrilled with how it's gone. Now, it obviously hasn't always been the case that it's been that size. Limud has definitely grown and developed as the years have gone on. Was this better than you anticipated for this year? So this is the first time we've used a new site. We're in a hotel surrounding Pendigo Lake in Birmingham. That's allowed us to make the event slightly bigger than it's been before. You know, I think that we are really thrilled that we've been able to reach so many people. There's something for everybody here. We've managed to attract people from across the UK and around the world. And I think it's wonderful that we've managed to have so many people come and take part in this event and, you know, take their next step in their Jewish journey. So how did it feel different from, say, previous years based on the new venue? Was it still the same old Limud that everyone's grown to know and love? Or would you say that it was different in a good way? It was different in a different way. There are lots of things that are very much Limud through and through and that will always be Limud. 
and they are the way we do sessions and the way people are here. But definitely the hotel, I think being in one place made Limud feel more accessible than ever. And you can really feel that people feel more comfortable, especially getting around the site. And I think also the uh, different kinds of spaces allowed us to think creatively and moving also always gives you the opportunity to consider what you've been doing and to reflect and do things differently. But it definitely feels like Limud. That's really exciting. And might I ask what, what might seem obvious to some, but just to clarify, why Birmingham? So there aren't that many hotels or conference venues that can cater for what we need. We need lots of bedrooms. We need provision for children. We need lots of session rooms. It needs to be close enough to London where lots of our participants come from. So we've been looking for a new venue which will allow us to grow. This was the ideal place to do it. And we're, you know, it's been a great success, the site moves. And those are the reasons why we had to, you know, why, why we wanted to come here this year. And it's confirmed that that will be the ongoing home for the moment or do we not um, know for next year yet? Well, we're, we're still working it out. We're hopeful that we'll be back here. We want to you know, continue to build on our relationship with the hotels and cultivate the same relationship that we had with our previous venue, which was Warwick University. Nothing's set in stone, but we're excited for you know, what, what we can do in this place. So, Deborah, why not take us a little bit through some of the events that actually happened or the speeches, the lectures that people could come and find at this year's Limud. You say it's obviously bigger and better than ever. I assume that meant more coordination, more arranging of guests. And I think you mentioned something in the region of four figures as terms of the number of speakers and actual things that people could go and see at Limud. How did that all come together and how much more difficult was it, say, for this year than previous years? So we had over 500 presenters Some of those uh, we organise centrally, but the vast majority are what we call self-invites. So they are people who book to come to Limud and submit sessions. Of those 1,200 sessions that we've had at Limud, a lot of it is what people just decide to bring to conference. A conference is something that we schedule in in relationship with our presenters. And this year we've had sort of a really wide range of programming from a neo-Hasidic bands to Ashkenazi cocktail making from our youngest presenters, a group of 16-year-olds talking about their views on Aliyah, to intense text sessions in Beit Midrash. The first session starts at about eight in the morning with the main slot at nine, and the last programming session finishes just after midnight. And there really is something for everyone. So you can walk from room to room, and you really never know what you're going to find inside. In terms of this year and scale, we actually turned away over 200 sessions. And that just gives you an idea of just how much more and how much desire and interest there is to bring discussion and debate and learning to Limud. And that's a really exciting prospect for us that we uh, curate a program where we allow everybody who wants to present to at least present something. But we also try to create as much variety as possible. So translating it to what, say, is in my world, which is obviously radio and talking and broadcasting, I would say that that sounds to me a little bit like it's a live radio station, almost, as it were. You just you don't know what you're going to get from it. You've got a schedule of different speakers, events, presenters, as you call them, and there should be something for everybody. So was that, was that how you would possibly describe it? It was a little bit like a live radio station. Yes, if you had 27 channels all running at once. <laughs> I see. Okay, my goodness. I mean, we work, we work really hard to produce an amazing handbook and we're updating an app which people can download on their smartphones. We're keeping our participants as up-to-date as we can with what's happening. Every presenter submits a bio and all the sessions have information. So we've got lots of information to help our participants work out 
how they can navigate the program, find out what they like and, you know, go to the sessions that appeal to them. And also word of mouth. Like I think the real key about Limud is that it is such a community and that presenters who come year on year build relationships with participants and people go to a session and over dinner when everyone sits together, they talk about what they've learned. And one of my favorite things about Limud is you'll go to a presenter on the first day and they'll have sort of a moderate audience. And by the last day, the crowd is spilling out into the corridor or having to find them a new room. And there is a real sense of kind of dialogue and excitement around the material that presenters bring to Limud. And presenters often then recommend other people to come to Limud in the next year. And the community grows and grows as a result. So it sounds like from an organiser's point of view that you couldn't have hoped for better. But can you tell us a little bit about the selection process? Talk about those who you said that you turned down over 200 applicants to actually take part in Limud. But how would you look at an applicant and think, yes, that's Limud. No, you know what, that's just not Limud enough. We don't turn down applicants to take part in Limud. Presenters are invited to submit sessions and we say to them nobody presents more than about three, but just to enable everybody who submits the session to present, we limit the number of sessions that people can present. So we look across the board at what have be, what's been suggested and sometimes there'll be eight sessions suggested on the same topic, for instance, right. in which case we'd look at what other things that that presenter had submitted or in rare cases we'll do an X Factor style, did you know this other person was also trying to do this and put them together and create a panel. So it's, it's a curating task. We take in all the information that we get, we process it, and then we hand schedule the program. So every single session slot, of which there are, I think, about 12 a day, is hand scheduled. So every one of the 30 sessions or whatever in that slot is curated by us to make the program as varied as possible. And I should just add that, you know, Debs is being quite modest and the whole team who are volunteers, we have a very, very small permanent office staff who who support the volunteers. The entire event is run by volunteers. We've had 30 on our team and Debs and Daniel, our co-chair, were two of them. And they have had another 20 or so programming volunteers, maybe slightly less. They've had 10 or so programming volunteers who have helped find the presenters and schedule it. It's a huge task and it's one that's all done by volunteers who have full-time jobs and busy personal lives. So we're really amazed and you know, absolute awe of the team of volunteers who've put this whole event together, the programming and everything else that goes with the event. It sounds absolutely fantastic. And, you know, my my regret is that, unfortunately, in past years, and this year has been no exception, I haven't personally had time to go to Limud myself. What would you do, though, to entice somebody listening now who's thinking, right, I love the sound of this. Obviously, it's too late for this year, but hopefully, please God, there's next year. What would you do to entice someone like me who's never been to Limud before to go next year? So firstly, I'd invite you to dip your toe in the Limud pool well before next year. We are lucky that Limud Conference is only one part of a year-round schedule of Limud events. That includes Day Limuds, Limud in the Woods, which is a sort of a outdoor collaborative Limud camping in a forest. There's also Taste of Limud, which is a blog and there's podcasts. So uh, you don't even have to wait till next year. But should you want to wait to next year, I would say that there is really no one profile of Limud participants. Our youngest participant, I think, is four months old and our oldest is well into their 90s. And I would say that that should allay anyone's fears that there won't be something there for them. I think the biggest thing that I've learned about Limud is that every time I sit in a group of people who are trying to explain Limud to another person, they all explain it slightly differently. And that gives me great confidence that every different person will find something that works for them at Limud. And you don't even have to come for the whole time. You can just come for a day. We offer day places as well. And the variety of accommodation options and stay options that now exist with conference means that 
hopefully more and more people will find different ways to access the Limud community, both in the winter and also year round. Well, I do have to congratulate you and the whole team who put it together because it really is an incredible achievement, not just for you guys, but I think for the community as a whole. And I'm sure that most people listening would absolutely agree with that. Just finally, if someone listening does want more information about Limud, where do they go? So they can head to our website, www.lamud.org, or search for Lamud on Google. We're on Facebook, Twitter. Search for Lamud in your search engine and you'll find us and find out how to get in touch with us. Well, here's hoping that the conference continues to grow bigger and better than before. But for now, my thanks goes to Mike Gladstone and Deborah Blaston. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. And still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, journalist and author Emma Klein, and homeopath David Needleman. They'll be discussing some of the biggest Jewish news stories that have come out of 2015. Plus, if you weren't able to attend this year's Limud, then we'll hear from someone who has. Jack Mandel from the Jewish News will tell us about his experience of this year's conference. Now, I don't know about you, but one of my favourite books has got to be Goodnight, Mr. Tom. It was written in the 1980s by Michelle Morahan, and although it's been adapted for the screen, it's now been adapted for the stage as well. It stars David Troughton. Now, if the name sounds familiar, you may know his rather famous dad, Patrick Troughton, of course, the second ever Doctor Who. Now, I digress. The story, if you're not familiar with it, is set during World War II, and although it's set in England and focuses on an evacuee called William, there is a Jewish element in the form of his best friend, Zach. Now, the story follows the adventures of the two and what they get up to, but it also glances over some of the attitudes towards Jews during that time. I spoke to David Troughton earlier in the week, and I started by asking him to tell us about his preparation for the role of Mr. Tom Oakley. We had a very short, relatively short, rehearsal period because there are three sets of main boys, two in each. So we have a William and a Zach, but we have three sets of them. So we had to rehearse them all three times. So I would normally go about preparing a part by reading the book, which I did. I remembered it anyway, because I used to read it to my children. I watched, re-watched John Thor, just out of interest, and then... I was filming in Somerset the month before, so that was good grounding for being in the country because this is set in Dorset. And then it's just a matter of working with the company, which is a fantastic company. It's a real ensemble piece where people have to use their imagination. And so very, very short scenes, very filmic it is, the play. So you have to hit the scene running before, you know, that was what I found most difficult. But hopefully now we're running. It's all, you know, getting oiled in. Well, I'm delighted to say that I've had the honour of seeing the production. Uh And I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it because... Did you know? I I was aware of the story. I have seen, as you mentioned, John Thor's version as well, the television adaptation of Goodnight, Mr. Tom. And I wasn't sure how it would translate to the stage because even though it's a very simple yet powerful storyline... There is actually quite a lot going on, isn't there? So when you have a blank There's, canvas of a stage, yeah. it, it's quite hard to imagine. There are a lot of imagine. levels to this play and story indeed. 
And I think David Wood captures the essence very well. Obviously, we have to leave out a lot of things because it would be too long. But in essence, I think the play captures the uh, the book very well. I would agree with that. And I think that just sort of seeing how you all click on stage and how it all comes together, mm. it must be something that you're very proud to be part of, right? I am indeed. Absolutely. You know, people are moving furniture for you all the time. I did offer to move some furniture, but um, <laughs> no, Mr. Tom doesn't move furniture. So um, no. so now you know you've made it, you don't have to move furniture. Absolutely, yes. We don't get the payment anymore anyway. Push and pull, we used to call it. If you had to move something on stage, you got an extra payment, but not anymore. Yeah. And tell us about your fellow cast members as well, because as you were saying just now, there are three sets of main child actors mm-hmm. in this, so three boys who play William, three boys who play Zach, and then there are a couple of other cast members as well. Yes, well, they the cast are magnificent. They play loads of different parts. Mm. There's a lovely double with Mrs Hartridge, who's a lovely, kind teacher in Dorset, and then she doubles as the horrible mother, who is a bit of a religious maniac and has just had a baby, is obviously suffering baby blues, and beats William mercilessly. It's a harsh, harsh story. The first half is set in rural Dorset, where the war doesn't really affect people, except for the evacuees coming. And then you go into the second half and see the harsh reality of what William had lived through. And that harsh reality, I think, even though on stage, I mean, obviously people can see it on television and there's obviously more money and effort that goes into effects, but it doesn't matter somehow on the stage. You still get a true sense of what I think anyway, of what life must have been like in those times. That's the skill of the company. And also, that's what a theatrical experience is for. It's, I'm a great believer in, in bare stages, no set. And this has hardly got any set, which I think really aids storytelling because you, as an audience, are put upon you you have to use your imagination and once you start doing that you get wrapped up in the story it's like reading the book you don't have the image in front of you you imagine it and watching this play must be I think the same thing I was just going to say to me it's akin to reading the book it really is because it it does as you say it it leaves an awful lot to the imagination which is in a really good way but does that make your job as an actor on that stage even harder yes it does because you have nothing to rely on I don't have a cottage with a fire and you know real lights and you know all that I've just got a table and a chair and that's it But then you, as an actor, it's your job to create that world on the stage and allow people into it. It's And, of course, Eliza, who does Sammy, is an integral part of Mr Tom. We are a double act. We are, you know, we are inseparable. I'm pleased you mentioned Eliza, because I have to say that one of my favourite characters has got to be Sammy the dog. It's an amazing way. What she does, she pays for it in physiotherapy. She gets herself into some very (laughs) extraordinary positions to handle the puppet. You know, it's very tiring, but uh, she does it magnificently. It's you just like get so lost with a dog. Yeah. Exactly. You get like so that. lost in believing that you are actually witnessing a yeah. very well-trained dog yeah. on stage. Well, he's not that well-trained. Sometimes I have to tell him <laughs> off. Yeah. Well, getting on to a more sort of serious side of it, I suppose, because there is this underlying tone of what life and what attitudes in particular were probably like towards minorities in those days. And in particular 
we're talking about Zach, who is a young Jewish lad yeah. who befriends William, the main character in it. And I think that just seeing how William's mother alone reacts to news of their friendship is really quite telling of how different an age it was. Yeah, well, we're talking about the late 30s, early 40s, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, Jewish people were probably sectioned off. I mean, you know, the attitudes were much less free now, and especially with a religious bigot like she is, you know, the line, the wonderful lines like, you know, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew, so were his parents, you know. Mm. You suddenly think, yeah, that, actually, that's pretty true. I know my wife, who went to a convent yes. school, she once said in front of them, but Jesus was a Jew, and they, they beat her. They beat her for saying that. So that was in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, the times haven't really changed in then, but now we have to be more PC about it. But this is what I th like about this book. It, it is of the period. Mm. She writes of the period and what people would have said then. And it also, I think, is a stark reminder of perhaps how lucky we are. And I don't mean we as a, a community, I mean we just generally as a society to live in an age of a little more tolerance than perhaps there Absolutely. was Absolutely, but that's surely what the Second World War was all about. The, the basis of it, to fight for freedoms which gradually develop. I mean, in those days, what would have happened? You know, single-sex marriages in the 40s, I don't think so. <laughs> Quite. But societies uh, develop, don't they? And hopefully they develop with a more giving aspect. Uh, I just despair of the world sometimes you know that so much conflict so much trouble so much sadness and we're only here once we're lucky to be here we're one in a billion every person on this world planet has a one in a billion chance of being here why don't we celebrate that instead of fighting each other I think there'll be many who would hear that who agree with you. Now, I want to talk really briefly, and I hope you don't mind me mentioning your father, because Patrick Trouser... He wasn't he Jewish. Is, he is, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, funnily enough, I think no, I No, I don't that, think he was, anyway. <laughs> unless he didn't tell you. No. <laughs> it was all an act. Yeah. <laughs> I can't not mention him because even though obviously it's not necessarily of my era, I have seen the repeats and I have to say, and I'm really not just saying this, I think that your father was indeed my favourite Doctor well, I, Who. I think he was and the best. I think he was the stamp for a lot of following Doctor Who's. I think they It really was. There are a lot Matt of traits Smith you can see in future ones. David Tennant. I think all that wicked humour that some of them bring, mm. it all started with my father, I think. Yeah. But I have to ask whether or not do you mind what could be deemed as living in the shadow of being called Patrick Troughton's son, or are you immensely proud of all your father? I'm very you? proud. Good God, I've, I've been an actor for 46 years now. I, that has passed me by way, <laughs> way in the past. Um, he's been dead now anyway for at least 28 years. So, you know, no, of course I was very proud to be his son and follow in his footsteps, but he never did theatre. I've done, I've done a complete change to what he did. He was pure television. He didn't like theatre, and I found out why, because he got too nervous about Goodness. live theatre. And yet he did live television. I, don't, I didn't understand that. No, he was physically sick before a performance. Oh, Absolutely wow. physically sick. 
but he had this bravura attitude about, oh, it's only pretendedly. But I've tried to take that, that it is only pretend. And whatever goes on on that stage is not really important to what is, you know, like nurses and doctors and, you know, surgeons. I mean, there's nothing to what they do every day. Well, all I can say is what does go on on that stage to me is truly immense and good. simply fantastic. Well, so that's good. As long as we you. can bring a bit of yeah. hope and, and people think about it. They have to think about this play, which is great. Yeah. Well, definitely. Well, I think to anyone who wants to go and see it and perhaps would like more information, do you know where they should be heading to? What, what uh, they well, it's on at the Duke of York's Theatre until February the 20th. And then we're going on a nationwide tour to places like Manchester, Birmingham, Milton Keynes. It's all on the website. If you put Goodnight Mr Tom, Duke of York's, then you'll get all the information you would want. Actor David Troughton speaking to me there about his current role as Mr Tom Oakley in the stage adaptation of Goodnight Mr Tom on at the Duke of York Theatre in London at the moment. For more information, you can go to goodnightmrtom.co.uk. That's Mr as in M-I-S-T-E-R as opposed to M-R. If you would like to get involved, we'd love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now, did you manage to make it to this year's Limud? You heard me speaking earlier on to some of the organisers, but if not, fear not. That goes for me as well, because uh, although I wasn't able to go, someone was able to. And in fact, actually, it is uh, Jack Mendel from The Jewish News, the online editor for The Jewish News. He did go along to this year's conference, and I'm delighted to say that he joins me on the line now to talk about his experience. Jack, can we just start off, I suppose, first of all, with how exactly does one get greeted when they get to Limud? Now, I'm obviously not saying there's a welcoming committee, but what's the first thing you find when you arrive at Limud? The first thing you find when you get to Limud is lots of people with foam fingers on, actually, pointing in various directions, telling you to get registered, to get various name tags, where you can get a packed lunch, where you can look at the schedule for the day. And there's about 2,000 people all doing this at the same time. So everyone's running around. It's quite hectic. But in some respects, it's organized chaos because everyone eventually gets sorted and they can get on to doing what they want to do. They can go to the sessions that they want to go to and um, they can start the fun. And had you ever been to Limud before? Did you know what to expect or was this the first time you went? I went last year, actually, and it was at Warwick University. They've moved venues this year. So I don't, I don't think anyone knew what to expect, really. It was always going to have a few teething problems and indeed it did, but on the whole, considering that it moved, it, was, it went really, really smoothly, actually. There, was no, there were no slip-ups or anything like that, and everyone seemed to really enjoy themselves. Now, we heard earlier on the organiser that we spoke to, that, of course, being Mike Gladstone and also Deborah Blouston. They were saying that one of the things they were trying to do for this year was to get an app together to try and help people who were going to Limud get a better understanding of how the conference was laid out, what events were on and happening, where to go and things like that. And also they said there was a written version as well. Did you find that navigating your way around all of the many, many different discussions that were going on easy enough or or was it quite overwhelming? Because there was just so many, weren't there? Limud every single year is dominated by a fear of missing out. There are so many things going on at once that you always think I could be at this or I could be at that. 
this year my phone was set so I got notifications 15 minutes before every event that I wanted to go to you could flag it up on the app and I did that and it made it very very convenient because I could plan when I wanted to work and when I wanted to go and listen to a talk and which talks I wanted to listen to so it really did help and I didn't actually need to open the book at all so really one for the new age I guess. One of the things that we're told earlier on in this program is that everyone who goes to Limud, and I think this is quite common knowledge really anyway, is that because Limud is so vast that everyone has their own experience of Limud and they go there and it's done their way. So what would you say, give us a bit of an insight into your Limud. What was your particular experience like in so much as that what talks did you go and see? What did you enjoy? What did you maybe not enjoy so much? My Limud was a mixture of going to events to see if there's any news and going to a couple of events for pleasure as well that I, w- I was interested in. So the news events were largely on Israel. I went to one about British politics and how devolution was going to affect the Jewish community in the UK. And the more pleasurable events were largely the cultural events, the singing, dancing. They had lots of acts coming in for, from Israel and There was a comedy night as well, which was really, really fantastic. It was packed out. All all in all, I think Limud is something that a a lot of people go there knowing that you're going to be looking at a lot of new things. You're going to be trying new things. You're going to be going to hear about topics you don't know about. So you, you always come away with something new. You always come away with something more interesting. And so is it fair to summarize and say that you did enjoy your time there? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. All right. Brilliant. Well, we're glad, obviously, you did have a good time. But for now, Jack Mendel, the online editor for The Jewish News, thank you very much indeed for telling us about your experience of Limud for this year. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Rosnan, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, journalist and author Emma Klein, and homeopath David Needleman. The subject of this edition is, as we heard earlier in the paper review, simply the top Jewish news stories to come out of 2015. The Jewish News has published the most read stories of the last year on their website and in their paper this week, so we thought we'd look back and reflect on some of them. Emma, as a journalist yourself, what would you say stands out as the biggest news story to come out of the community this year? Well, uh, possibly it was the terror in Paris when the Hyper Caché, the kosher supermarket, uh, had a gunman entering and killing, you know, several people. And four, well, four, several, if you think of people just shopping yes, in a normal way. Yes, there were four hostages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they were dead. And yes, it was terrible. That just followed on from Charlie Hebdo. And the fact that there was further terror in Paris in November, although not Jewish special specifically, just shows that uh, terror is a this horrible thing. And when it attacks Jews as well, obviously it has to be a very important thing to take into consideration. I think what's most important, what I remember of it, is the young Muslim man, mm-hmm. the young black man, yeah. who took four Jews, I think it was four, maybe it was more, and hid them downstairs in an ice... I think it was an ice freezer. It was an ice room, a cold oh, room. Yes. Hit him in. Yeah. I think it's... Uh, 
is is a very hopeful. Well, if part yes, of well, it. I'm afraid I, 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 that's not something I recollect right now. But now you say it, that is very important and very hopeful. When another faith stands up for the Jews, it's uh, something that yeah. can inspire us. And, and especially as he was Muslim as well. Yes, yes, that's the point. Yes, and, so. and I believe they gave him a medal, medal the. Medal of Honor, I don't know. Uh, Legion d'honneur. Legion d'honneur. Yeah, so he deserved that. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. And and my reaction to that was the following Sunday they had a, a rally in Trafalgar Square, basically for Charlie Hebdo. Yeah. But uh, we went along to that, and, and there were lots and lots of Jewish people at it, wearing kippahs and mm -hmm. to be seen, to be doing, you know, to support. Coming out of that though is something that is the news. This week, exactly. So it's not part of the ten things that Jewish news talked about, but still, it's come out of it. Is the fact that there are now more anti-Semites and anti-Muslim people in this country? Really, something like sixty odd percent. Sixty odd percent. Yes, yeah. Doesn't surprise me because I think a lot of people are, if you like, closet anti-Semites, and now they've been given the publicity with other people people are coming out of that closet and opening themselves up to scrutiny. Are, are you saying that once an anti-Semite, always an anti-Semite, or can people change? That's ah, there was a big question on one of the radio shows I was listening to on the way here about Oliver Letwin, yes, about yeah. what he said 30 years ago. About the blacks. Um, yeah. And all I could think about on, on that story was that there was no other indication about him at all being racist. And you've only got to look back to Prince Harry wearing a Nazi uniform at a party and look at him now. Are you not being just a bit sensitive now, David, in thinking in that, in that way? I, I don't think so. I think people are allowed to make mistakes and I think people are allowed to change. But yeah, it's definitely. very much a question of, of the degree of the mistakes they make in the first place and the degree of change they make over time. I think that's a good point. Yeah, it's a good point, but yeah. I actually think that it's, it's wrong to, because... Oliver Lepwini is a Jew. In the press you read about, I mean, although one knows he's a Jew, it's not said, Jew Oliver Lepwin said these racist things. No, no that's, I mean, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? They haven't mentioned they it. They haven't mentioned it. We know he's Jewish, but they haven't mentioned mm. it in the papers. That's right, they're just talking and about And Lepwin being a sort of remarks. fairly neutral name, mm. it's not too obvious yes. to the non uh, familiar, you know, sort of the unfamiliar with the situation. Anyway, to get back to the uh, top ten list in Jewish news. Another one that I think is uh, very interesting is the one that uh, talks about the police bar of the Nazi rally from taking place in, in Golders Green. Green. Yeah. They didn't actually bar it though, did they? They just moved it from Golders Green to Westminster. Yeah, but it worked. It worked, yeah. It worked. I mean, they're saying they barred it, but it, it was just a movement of people. Well, I think many people were protesting and then the police came in. I think yeah. the police did the right thing to move it, yeah. I don't think. Look, I'm not, I'm not again, and we've spoken about this many times, I'm not, not against freedom of speech right. at all. Because I think once you, once you ban freedom of speech, then you don't know who you're dealing with and people become dangerous. At least if someone speaks out about it, sure. you, can, you can defend yourself and fight it. But So I wasn't against the, the rally as such. I, I just think that these neo-Nazis should have had it in Trafalgar Square. You know, where, and then the whole world can see 
them have this rally. Well, obviously and, and they were focusing. They, they were focusing on Golders Green because of all the Jews here. I mean, yeah. So why not have it in Stamford Hill? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now reminded us. Well, you know, in, in in the 30s, where did they have their marches? In the East End. In the East End of yeah. London, yeah. in the Jewish areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but Stamford Hill, most of the Jews there are are the ultra religious, mm-hmm. aren't they? Orthodox, yes. yeah. And it's it's a strange thing to say, but I think maybe those sort of people don't really take in the ultra-religious. They take in the people who live in Golder Street. Yeah, I would have thought so. If you yeah. see. Yeah, and of course the original that. rally was going to be on a Saturday, wasn't it? In Golder Street. Possibly, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was once told by a taxi driver who brought me to this place. And he said, you know this place, it's full of, of Jews. <laughs> so I said, yes, I know, I'm going to a Jewish place. And he said, are you? Well, you know, they, they, they are the world's worst drivers, and they, they really are very strange people. So I said, yes, I am. Yeah. And got out of the car. I didn't you, give you him know a something, tip. he could be right. I've seen some of the drivers. Oh, so he lost, his, he, lost his <laughs> <laughs> he lost his tip. But it is, it is a fact that it was done, uh, it was a horrible idea to do it. Yes, it was. Yeah, sure. It was unnecessary to do it in God's Green. I just think it was now reminded us on the on behalf of the neo-Nazis, which shows what sort of people they are. Mm-hmm. It's just a shame it wasn't broadcast widely with the very small number of people that turned up and humiliation would have followed. Something, 20, or 20 or 25, yeah. yes. In, in Westminster, 20 or yeah. 50. Yes. Yeah. Trafalgar yeah. Square would have been good because it would have highlighted the numbers. 20, there'd be more lions than people. Yeah. One of the other 10 top list that the, the Jewish News talks about is about the far-right groups planning a demonstration against Jewish privilege in Golders mm. Green. Oh, that was part of the same story. It was part of the, same, the same story, story, but it was... So it's what happened given, to that? That was also banned. Well, it's all part of the same story, mm-hmm. but it's been given its own uh, heading. Its own heading, that's why, it's, Jewish that's privilege, why I looked at it. And Jewish privilege is exactly, you no. Know, oh, Jews, they, they cheat, they want money, they want this, they want that. I think that's, that's what Jewish privilege means. Mm. Yeah, yes, yeah. right, right, right the, usual stereo- the usual stereotype. Yes. yes. I've come across lots of non-Jewish people who don't realise I'm Jewish until I tell them. And, I, and I'm very upfront when I meet people of bringing out somewhere in the conversation that I am Jewish, because firstly I'd like to see their reaction. Mm-hmm. But the majority of them aren't anti-Semitic, they're just uneducated. Yes. In, 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 and several of them have said, oh, you know, I thought all Jews were very wealthy, and <laughs> because they don't know, they've never there met is, anybody there, Jewish. I think I've probably told this story before, but in the newsroom many years ago, there were two Jewish women who were secretaries, and one of them was a very quiet, gentle, elderly lady. Well, she seemed to me to be elderly at that time. She probably wasn't. You were a young man. I was very young. And the, the other one was what you might describe as a typical East End Jewess who didn't wear a bra, who had a peroxide blonde hair, had a strong cockney accent, and shouted loudly. She had a heart of gold. One day, one of the journalists there said to me, can't stand that Jewish woman. She's so Jewish. So I said, well, what about the other woman? She's also Jewish. Oh, no, she's not Jewish. He <laughs> says, she is. And then I said, and so am I. I just thought she'd like to know. And he said, you can't possibly be a Jew. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it's it? It's extraordinary. People's stereotypical yeah. uh, ideas yes. of right. what Jewish They have this is. view that there is yeah. this sort of, the Jews are all Loud, loud and, and yep. chasing money and, yes. yeah, and, and the rest. And of course right. we're not. We need to educate people. Right? I think, yeah, absolutely. Well, I've been doing that. I've tried to do that all my life. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I must say, though, throughout my life, I've never come across, personally, any anti-Semitism. 
Oh, I have. And I lived have in you? a non-Jewish area. I was brought up in a non-Jewish area. I have area. only once in my life, really? apart from the one I just told you, which I didn't really call no. anti-Semitism. No. But uh, there was a woman, when I really started broadcasting, in the, there was a woman who was a fellow announcer. She was brilliantly clever, and she didn't like me. <laughs> she didn't know I was Jewish. And one day, she told me where she lived, and she said, I live in Marylebone High Street. Have a beautiful flat. But unfortunately, she said, the flat beneath us is owned by a fat, oily, greasy Jewish man. And his fat, greasy, oily woman, Jewish woman, and their equally fat, oily, greasy son. And this spoils the whole thing. And I, to this day, and this is many, 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 many years ago, to this day, I'm ashamed of not saying, so am I. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was too nervous to know what to do or mm-hmm. what to say about it. Too young, too nervous. Yeah. Equally, she's yeah. the same woman who said, I don't like small, yappy dogs, and she said, they can always tell. <laughs> so you can see what a lovely lady she yeah, was. It sounds delightful. <laughs> Just what you want as a neighbour. They can always tell. <laughs> or a work colleague. Or, yeah, or a work colleague. <laughs> she, was the only, she was the only anti-Semitic person, I think, yeah. in, in my life that I've ever met. Yeah. So I don't really think that most people are interested. No, I don't think. It's just ignorance. Yeah, ignorance. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it's very it strange out. that the only anti-Semitism, overt anti-Semitism, that I've experienced was in institutions of education. Oh, really? Really? Oh, yes. Yeah? When I was born, my father put me down for a particular public school, mm. and a new housemaster came, and the housemasters at that time had the last word on who came and who didn't come. And he just crossed off every Jewish name and every Asian name. Really? Really? Oh, yes. There were two other situations that that I can recall in my life. One was at school, the headmaster. And one was a medical school that I'd applied to and went for an interview. And they told, I won't tell you which one it was, they told me at the interview that there were 3,500 people for 72 places. And they took 1% Jew, 1% Catholic, 1% overseas. Well, 1% of 72 people is 0.72, <laughs> which meant I had no chance. <laughs> but it wasn't but just did choose. you say uh, I've already had the operation? So that... <laughs> <laughs> they might have thought the wrong operation. Anyway, there we are. I'm afraid that's where we've got to end our schmooze about all of that. <laughs> My thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, journalist and author Emma Klein, and homeopath... David Needleman. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Morris Michaels from Aleth Garden Synagogue. This week we begin the second book of Torah, Exodus, with a retelling of the names of those who went down into Egypt. We left the book of Genesis with the family of the patriarch Jacob firmly based in Egypt. Diaspora Jewry starts here. But as we know only too well, things change. The Israelites are no longer welcome. Everything that Joseph has done for Egypt is forgotten. The people are enslaved. They're persecuted. How many times throughout our long history has this been a paradigm? The concept of the wandering Jew is not necessarily by choice. Oppression and persecution has often made packing up and moving on a necessity rather than due to wanderlust. A people without a home to call its own has been the reality for most of its history. So it's no wonder that the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 brought a euphoria 
which even the various wars and intifadas since have done little to diminish. If anything, they've resulted in an even greater emphasis on the need to strengthen the hold on the land. Thus Israelis have huge difficulty in understanding how anyone can possibly imagine they would easily give up any portion of their territory unless there was a firm guarantee of peace. They've seen how coming out of Lebanon gave Hezbollah a base from which to attack northern Israel, and how the unilateral decision to give up their settlements in Gaza provided Hamas and other terrorist organisations with the ability to send rockets into the south of the country. And now, the current spate of indiscriminate stabbings and other attacks, particularly in the West Bank and Jerusalem, hardly suggests that peace would result from pulling out of settlements in those territories. Yet the international community has such a blinkered view, resulting from probably the most successful PR campaign of all time on behalf of the Palestinians, that it believes the reverse. The Western world seems to think that Fatah and Hamas and Islamic Jihad and all the other groups ranged against Israel will lay down their weapons if Israel returns to the pre-1967 borders. The fact that these organisations have made and continue to make it abundantly clear that their goal is the destruction of the very existence of Israel and the expulsion of all Jews from the land is ignored. The fact that a whole range of Muslim countries, including Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, Egypt, Jordan and now even Turkey, have de facto, if not actually formally, recognised Israel, not just its existence, but its strategic importance in the area, all this seems to have been missed completely. The fact that the world is now facing, and indeed suffering from, the threat of Islamic terrorism, the macrocosm, of what Israel has endured for nearly 50 years, does not appear to be understood. There's a wishful thinking in place that if the Israel-Palestinian conflict can be resolved, everything else would follow suit. This naivete on the part of world leaders does not all go well for the survival of the values that have long been the hallmark of Western society as they come under attack from those of a completely different ethos and culture as portrayed by fundamental Islam. What we are seeing in parts of Africa and the Middle East is the renewal of the battle between Christianity and Islam that has been mostly dormant for several centuries. It's only when that understanding is accepted, when the Christian world recognises that it has an existential struggle on its hands, that it can hope to deal appropriately with it. And in the meantime, we few million Jews are caught, sandwiched in the middle of the billion and more of each of the other two Abrahamic faiths as they once again strive for dominance. Powerful stuff indeed. Thank you to Rabbi Morris Michaels from Aleph Garden Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Mike Gladstone, Deborah Blauston, David Troughton, Jack Mendel, and thanks also to the Schmooze team, Tony Honigberg, Emma Klein and David Needleman. And of course, thank you to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team as well, including our producer, Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website. That address is coming up and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. 
Don't forget you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version of the paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.